All right, real quick, people, before we get into today's show, we've just released a new course, Periodization for Periods, all around how to train women around their monthly cycle, and we've got it on special. If you're interested, click the link in the show notes. You are now listening to the Fitness Education Online Podcast, the podcast where fitness professionals go to grow their fitness business. If you're in the fitness industry, you'll find tips and strategies from proven business experts. Now, let's start the show. G'day guys, Travis here for the Fitness Education Online Podcast. Super excited for today. It's a big show. We've got another episode of Bro Science. Uh, So I'll introduce my brother first. Craig, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me back again, Travis. Very excited to continue on this uh, journey of bringing some, some evidence to the masses. Yeah, so again, real big episode here, sorting fact from fiction, and we're going to be diving into, realistically, one of my favorite topics. Uh, I love a bit of Joe Rogan, and we're going to be diving into um, some of his treatment options that he took when he caught COVID. Uh, those of you who have followed Joe Rogan, and we've learned one of our guests had never heard of him until this <laughs> previously, so it's really interesting. But for those of you who maybe don't know Joe Rogan, essentially has the largest podcast going around in the world. Um, bit of a meathead, guests from all over, all, all sorts of walks of life, scientists, you name it, uh, caught COVID essentially maybe a month ago and uh, came out and announced that he threw the kitchen sink at it, all sorts of things, whole heap of different drugs, whole heap of different treatments. And um, what I want to talk about today is a bit of the debunking around some of the media that was thrown at it. You know, he was took horse dewormer tablets and all of this sort of stuff that he, he took that was no good. It was all experimental, but lo and behold, cured in six days, or at least no longer had COVID in six days later, appeared pretty healthy and, and moved on with his life. So what we want to talk about here is we've got two awesome guests who are essentially experts in their different fields, and they're going to dive into some of the stuff that he took, what the evidence is whether it works, whether it's backed by science. And then obviously Craig has done some other research there as well. I am outnumbered today. I am the one bro in the uh, field of doctors. Uh, I'm going to go with the first one. I've got Dr. Kyle Sheldrick, who is a medical research doctor with a real big interest in essentially debunking fraudulent medical research or Medical studies, I suppose, is, is the correct term. Um, so we're going to throw to Kyle in a moment. And then our second guest is Dr. Peter Schofield, who works in antibody research uh, internationally, locally, working on the mon- monocro- monocrodial antibodies. We have, might have to help me there. Monoclonal, mate. Close. Monoclonal antibodies. That's why I'm not the doctor. So... These two guys are essentially leaders in the field. We'll do a bit, uh, we'll give them a bit of a chance to introduce themselves better than I have done. Um, Kyle, say hello and uh, let us let us know a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I'm Kyle. I'm a medical doctor. I went to med school with Craig. We were in the same year and I have been taking a one-year break from clinical practice for research that's in its fourth year now. Uh, my main area is actually in medical imaging for back pain which is pretty rubbish uh as it is now as a field and i saw that you guys also looked at that it was actually but, a previous episode yeah <laughs> uh, but my real, three, i believe <laughs> yeah my real passion is uh being a bit of a science narc that is 
looking at claims that people make and say, we've done this research and going, well, have you? And we found this and going, is that true or is that a lie? So I spend a lot of time diving into data sets and ringing people up and sending them emails going, you publish this, show us your data. Yeah, okay. And most of, most of my work's been on Ivermectin for the last sort of three months. Love it. We're going to dive into that in a moment. And then we'll throw it to Peter. Uh, Pete, thanks for joining us as well. Uh, do you want to fill us in? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks, Travis. Yeah, so um, I'm a medical researcher at the Garvin Institute. Um, we have a thing called the Antibody Lab here. And basically, um, I'll, I can explain a bit more about antibodies later, but essentially our lab has been trying to make therapeutic monoclonal antibodies to a whole bunch of different diseases over the last 10 years. And I've been here that whole time. Uh, it's usually tackling cancers um, with very specific sort of targets within cancer. But uh, when the, uh, when, when COVID sort of came out of the, uh, came, came out in about December last year, um, we, we, we sort of started jumping on to what we could do as a lab for that by about February. So we were already onto it by then um, because we knew that a big part of the response was going to have to be therapeutic monoclonal antibodies that could um, be sort of a safety net um, for vaccines when the vaccines were coming. And it was also uncertain back in February last year, mm. but um, we sort of had that foresight that we'd, they were going to need to be part of the mix. So um, I can talk about that later as well. So. Love it. Beautiful. So Craig, I'm going to throw it to you first. So Joe Rogan says, we threw the kitchen sink at it. What what are the things that he threw at it? Yeah, so it's interesting. So um, our good friend Joe, so he was not vaccinated. So he wasn't strictly anti-vax in his descriptions. He just hadn't quite gotten around to it. So I, I think you could probably say he was vaccine hesitant. He'd previously made a few comments saying, you know, for an individual decision, uh, you know, making good life choices and uh, being positive around around your health behaviours was uh, was an important factor, and he, he's had a lot of a lot of rhetoric around the importance of, of being healthy, which I think is uh, is is a is valid advice. Um, obviously, that and a vaccine is probably the best advice. Uh, so when he recently caught COVID, he threw the kitchen sink at it, and so the treatments that he used included. Um, he treated it with uh, immunoglobulins. He treated it with ivermectin. He took prednisone, a uh, corticosteroid. He took ZPAC, which is the American name for azithromycin. And then he went and had a couple of days of IV NAD drips, which is a precursor for, uh, well, B, vitamin B3 is a precursor for it. And he took other another mixed vitamin IV drip for a few days. Uh, and then reported feeling pretty good by day three, and then took a uh, took a, a rapid antigen test for COVID a few days later, which was turning turning negative, and was back to recording his podcast uh, later that week. I think he cancelled a couple of shows, but but he he managed to to bounce back from his illness pretty quick with that uh, with that regime, the kitchen sink regime. <laughs> I think that's probably what it's called. Now, for those of you who are listening. Uh, Kyle did have his head in his hands a couple of moments, a couple of times there. And we're, we're going to throw to Kyle basically early on because the first thing that, as Kyle mentioned, is he's dived into is the ivermectin side of things. And, and he had his head in the hands over a few other things there. So this is going to be interesting to hear, um, maybe his other thoughts and the other stuff. But ivermectin's been one that he, I know that Joe Rogan mentioned a lot. And I would say that basically part of the reason He's probably part of a, a big part of the reason that the um, maybe the information about ivermectin is out there. I, I would suggest 
Um, you know, I think he gets you know hundreds of millions of listens uh, to people every single month over and over. So uh, I would say he's a big reason that this drug has made its name, just like Trump was a big reason that hydrochloroquine, whatever it is. Hydrochloroquine. You're close. That, that one, just like Trump was a big reason that that made its name. Hydroxychloroquine. Yeah. That's it. But Joe Rogan was, was ivermectin. And so, Kyle, we, we know that you dived into a bunch of this particular research. And funnily enough, one of the big studies which you're going to talk about was done in Argentina. Um, and funnily enough, my, my wife's from Argentina, and I know her brother-in-law has been on ivermectin uh, as a pharmaceutical sales rep. Uh, but you're going to dive into all of that sort of stuff. So, Kyle, can't wait to hear this. Let's take a quick break. When it comes to influencer marketing, there's a podcast that covers it all that you will want to add to your playlist. The Influence Factor by the Influencer Marketing Factory. They talk about influencer marketing, social media, the creator economy, social commerce, and much, much more. They cover all aspects, including the creator economy, social commerce, the latest trends, the metaverse, TikTok trends, and that's just the beginning. The Influence Factor by the Influencer Marketing Factory. Add the podcast to your playlist right now. Yeah, well, there's been a lot of research out of South America into ivermectin. Some of it's really good. Some of it is rubbish. Some of it is fraudulent. And ivermectin is a really special case. So, you know, most of the times in medicine when we're not really sure if a drug works for something, it's because it hasn't been looked at enough that we actually don't have a lot of evidence. There is tons of evidence out there around ivermectin it is one of the most studied drugs of any drug for any indication in the last 12 months and not just Um, for horses no and you know we so i encountered ivermectin in med school when i went up to queensland to do my elective and it's used all the time for scabies it's not it's not an animal drug it's used in animals but it is a human drug and the thing about ivermectin is it actually what I get a bit frustrated by some of the really extreme responses to it. Ivermectin was not a stupid suggestion. There was already evidence out there, at least in lab evidence, about ivermectin having an effect on lots of viruses. It wasn't a bad thing to try. And up till sort of four months ago, I reckon up till about May, the evidence was looking pretty good for ivermectin. We had lots of trials showing really big effects. We had these two big meta-analyses where you know, experts come along and put trials together, one by a guy named Andrew Hill in the UK and the other one by this bird group in the UK. And they both sort of said that, you know, ivermectin saves a lot of lives. It reduces your chance of dying, but both of them said somewhere between half and two thirds. The problem is they both turned out to be rubbish. So while we've got lots of ivermectin research, it is terrible. Only about a quarter of it is useful. And of the other three quarters, I would say probably of the trials we've looked at, which are the bigger ones with the more extreme claims, about a third are outright fraudulent. And I don't mean I don't mean here that we're talking about might be fraudulent. We're not talking about, oh, there's some slight irregularities. One of them that I can't name because the BBC are going to come out soon with it, they've taken the same 11 patients and they've copied and pasted them over and over again and changed the outcome. I mean, El Ghazar, which is the one that everyone quoted, which was the single biggest piece of evidence that ivermectin worked. He has copied and pasted whole blocks of patients and just changed 
the outcomes. There's very clearly in multiple of these studies times when people have just sat down with an Excel sheet and typed out numbers. And you can see this because you see these really, people cannot fake randomness. And when people try and fake randomness and you test it, it's really obvious. So like Elgazar, again, that's one I can talk about a lot because it's public and it was the single biggest study. Was that the Egyptian, you, the Egyptian that's study? That's the one. If you look at the ferritin levels, so everyone had a ferritin level when they first came in. And straight away I went, that's, that is bollocks. That didn't happen. I've recruited, I've recruited for clinical trials in acute conditions. So I recruited for one on a drug called, a trial called Riscus in spinal cord injury, where they've got to get their first dose in four hours. So I'm there at two o'clock in the morning trying to recruit someone for a clinical trial. The amount of data missing on my forms, awful. If someone says, we recruited 600 people and collected 100 different points of data on them at baseline, in a really acute illness with a lot of those crashing to ICU and we didn't miss anything, they're lying. So, you know, you look at the sheet and you go, these people aren't telling the truth. But like you look at the ferritin and I went, no one is missing a baseline ferritin out of 600 people. So I had a look at it and I just looked at what's the- the, uh, Ferritin's the storage of iron. So it's a commonly tested thing, but it's not a routine- a routine no. point of care. You're not, not going to get, everyone who walks in the hospital doesn't get a ferritin level. I can't think of anyone acutely coming into ED that I've ever done a ferritin on, Craig. I don't know about you, but all no, of no. them have it. I, I'm in GP yeah. land. So yeah, so we, we do it a little bit for the for the yeah. tired people, but uh, in terms of uh, an acute hospital uh, admission, you're, you're not going to see it. doesn't make sense. Yeah. yeah. And so what I did was I looked at the 600 of them. And if we think someone has made up a number, we look at what is the last digit. And out of the 600 people who had the ferritin, only two of those have the last digit of three. So if you sit down and you try and just type out 600 random numbers, you can't do it. So we saw this huge number of ferritins ending in eight, and we saw two of them ending in three. And so when we, I say we, because there's this group of five of us who do all these studies together. And so when you actually sit down, you can plug that into a calculator and go, well, how likely is this? And we, we get this thing called a p-value, which is what is the chance of this, you know, happening randomly, that this guy genuinely did a trial and the data came out this way. And they're sort of like 10 to the minus 18, where you go, if you ran a billion, billion trials, not one would look like this. And you go, you've just sat down and you've typed out numbers. This is not a real trial. You know, a lot of these are, we think of people who fake research as being masterminds and they're not. They work on the basis that if you go out and you fake a clinical trial today, the chance of you being caught is nearly zero. We have almost no scrutiny in mm. medicine for this. If you do a clinical trial, lots of people will sit down and they'll do this tool where they say, is it biased? Is it good? Is the design you've described appropriate for answering the question? No one sits down and goes, well, did you actually do it? And so like about three months ago, I started emailing these people who published these trials and being really blunt and going, I want to check your trial for fraud. Send me your raw data so I can see if you made it up. Like that blunt. And the people who've done the really good trials, so like uh, Lopez Medina in Colombia, which was published in JAMA, or um, Ivacor, which is another South American one by Vallejos. Um, I think that one was also Argentina. They're like, sure. Like I got the data from them within like 48 hours. The people who say, no, you can't check it for fraud, but then give the data to other people to like include in meta-analyses, you've got to be pretty suspicious of them. But yeah, I reckon about a third of the trials straight out may either didn't happen 
or fabricated results because they didn't like the results they actually got. And they're not evenly spread. They're the ones that are making these miracle drug predictions. Like Elgazar said, it reduced death by 10 times. Fake. Carveo, which is the biggest single study on prevention, that's the one that everyone quotes, um, that, you know, said that they looked at more than 1,000 healthcare workers, 100%. This is the Argentinian one specifically, right? Yes. So, um, and they said that, oh, yeah, about 50% of the group that didn't get ivermectin got infected and zero out of 1,000 with ivermectin got infected. You know, straight away you go, that's pretty unlikely. And then just flat out said to me, no, you can't see my data. And so I emailed his co-authors because one's Australian and a serious, you know, professor of surgery from Adelaide. And he goes, well, you know, Kyle's got some points. I want to see your data. And the guy says to his own co-author on the paper, no, sorry, you can't see um, and so then journalists get involved. That's one in BuzzFeed. And this, I put some stuff up publicly and I get this inbox message on Twitter from this guy named Javier Farina, who's the head of infectious diseases at one of the hospitals going, we're a hospital where they supposedly recruited hundreds of people. I've never heard of this trial. And no one I know has ever heard of this trial. And so now he's gone, oh, yeah, okay, maybe we made a mistake and changed it to other peripheral medical centre. And the statistician he blamed for all of his problems says, I never worked on that trial, which he now also accepts, you know, was untrue. But we're still meant to believe that this is a serious study that happened. They got the hospitals they recruited at wrong. They got the people involved wrong. They won't show anyone, including their own authors, the data, but we're meant to take it seriously. So I can see why so many people got so excited about Ivermectin. It really looked like it was a wonder drug about four months ago. The problem is it looked like a wonder drug because of a combination of people doing really, really bad research and people just lying to further their careers. And so that now was going actually, to be my next like question, actually. That was going to be my next question is what's the incentive to, to lie for these people? Like not being from the field, what is it that would make someone go, I'm just going to make this up or yeah. what would be the purpose? So there's probably two things. One of those is I think the level of risk these people saw in faking stuff is nearly zero. Um, if you go out and you publish a fake clinical trial today, the chance of you getting caught is very, very low. And none of these were sort of early career researchers. So Elgazar, who, you know, copied and pasted in Egypt and just changed outcomes, he was the former dean of the medical school. Um, Carvalho has just retired. These are all guys in the final sort of year or two of their career who, you know, I think want to go out with a bank. That's my, I don't know for sure, but that's my little psychoanalysis. I actually don't think most of these are profit. I think very, very, I can think of one maybe that is profit um, and that's not around ivermectin. That's another new treatment. Um, I don't think people say, you know, is there a conspiracy? I know there's not a conspiracy. Like you look at this stuff, this is not mastermind stuff. This is faking a high school assignment stuff, like the sort of quality of these fakes. It is, it's just those two things. It's incredibly beneficial to your career and your standing to do a major clinical trial. And if you think ivermectin is going to work and the big trial is going to come out later showing it works, there's a real advantage to being first. And then the other side is there's almost no downside because you can be pretty confident you're not going to get caught. Let's take a quick break. Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? 
And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG. And we're the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. I'm I'm just so lost for words. <laughs> like I funnily enough, I immediately think of a Joe Rogan episode where yeah. he has the uh the people who submitted all the studies on the dog park and the Oh yep. Yep. You know, like, studies people. Yes. I, yeah, I don't know the episode. Like I didn't realise how big Joe Rogan was until uh my brother messaged me going, Oh, did you hear Joe Rogan got this? I went, Who? And then all these other people messaged me, I went, Oh, this guy's a big deal. Um, but yeah, I'd never had anything to do with him before this, but I mean, there's this thing of, we want to write off everyone who wants to take ivermectin and believes in ivermectin as an idiot. And most of them aren't like, the thing is ivermectin a few months ago looked like the real deal. We just don't have the structures in place to stop this sort of really fake research. I, I mean, obviously we haven't named every study, but I can say we've got a, paper coming out in nature medicine in a little over 24 hours there is not a single randomized control trial that found a significant mortality benefit for ivermectin so showed statistically significantly that ivermectin made you less likely to die that isn't fake not one um and so that's why we had this incredible thing where the big trials like running a trial takes longer than faking a trial so we've had these really big trials that have come out now um, like Phileos, Lopez, Medina, together, which is the really big one, um, has said publicly its results but hasn't published, showing just the complete opposite. And I'm not talking about, you know, you run a trial 10 times, you get slightly different results from random chance. I mean, absolute opposite extremes. Um, so I can most see why... Are at, yeah, most of these looking at prophylaxis or treatment? Most of these are looking at treatment. Most of the prophylaxis studies are lower quality. They can still be faked, like um, Carvea. Mo- there's very few big RCTs for prophylaxis. Um, almost all of these are treatment, uh, looking at survival. I don't know a single prophylaxis study that's really seriously looked at survival. But I can understand why people were so excited about ivermectin. And there's, you know, that cognitive bias. It's much harder to undecide something than to decide it. Once you've decided that something works undeciding it is very hard and so i can see why a lot of serious otherwise sensible people go well i think i should take ivermectin but people really and it's hard because a lot of the criticism is ridiculous a lot of it is just oh you know horse paste when you know okay some people are taking horse paste but not many people and ivermectin on the whole is a pretty safe drug um you see this ridiculous stuff like oh you know hospitals are overflowing with ivermectin overdoses and it's hard because, so there's this one group that are probably the hardest pushers of ivermectin in the world, the most extreme. They're called FLCCC in the US and they are just loose cannons. I wouldn't go to them or listen to them on almost anything. When we give ivermectin for times, it should really be given, like um, river blindness and um, stronger lodiasis and things like that. We give 150 mics per kilo. Single dose, you just give it once, it's fine. You can come back in 12 months, 150 mics. 
This FLCC group is recommending 3,000 micrograms over five days. That is 20 times the dose we have experience with. Anyone who is following these protocols and telling you that, oh, well, I'm just making an informed bet because ivermectin is so safe, they are not making an informed bet. Mm. No one out there can look you in the eye and say, we know what these sort of doses of ivermectin do over the long term or rare side effects. We've got tiny little pharmaceutical dose finding studies where maybe 20 people have been given it and followed for a week. The sort of doses, people, I would love to know how much ivermectin he took, but that's the other thing. You've got this thing of, well, he got better in six days. So do a lot of people. Hmm. Like when we look at these studies about what is the sort of, what is the time that people recover? Like the median time for a lot of these studies, like the control arms where they don't give them anything is sort of nine days. And we see this thing of interquartile range. We go, okay, how fast do the fastest quarter get better? And that's sort of four days. So six days is maybe a little bit better than the average, but it's not, you know, spectacular. So, so you, you don't think it was the ivermectin that did it? <laughs> I don't think it was the ivermectin that did it. But if he's taking sort of, you know, human ivermectin at standard doses, the side effects are also incredibly small. And a lot of the sort of this ivermectin panic that's been blown up is... Did you do any yeah. Googling? So I did a Google of Joe Rogan COVID treatment and pretty much every headline was Joe Rogan takes horse medicine. Joe Rogan takes, you know, uh, horse deworming. Like it was pretty interesting. And that's that's one thing that Travis has commented about. And the, the whole, um, you know, the whole rhetoric against it is, is, is as you've, you sort of mentioned to me when we were chatting about getting on, getting yeah. on board for this podcast, it's pretty unscientific. It, it's interesting that it's, elucidated such a strong reaction from both sides when it sounds like the answer is it's a it's a bit in the middle of you yeah. know, nothing and <laughs> like if you talk to the people like say me gid so giddy and my wits cats who've looked at it there's not a lot of passion like someone said to me on twitter the other day would you take it or would you you know let your family take it i was like you know i wouldn't take it because I just don't think the evidence is there for it. If it has an effect, it's pretty small. And obviously all this miracle drug stuff is just rubbish. But I don't feel strongly enough about it that, you know, if my brother or dad or someone came to me and said, oh, you know, I've got co I've been exposed to COVID, or I've got COVID, and I'm taking this ivermectin. I mean, I'm not the boss of them, so I don't normally tell them what to do anyway. But I wouldn't feel strongly enough to be like, no, you have to stop. Now, like it's not recommended. I'm not going to go out there and recommend it. I'm not going to prescribe it to anybody. Uh, I'm not going to tell anyone to take it. And I'm certainly not going to take it myself. But I don't feel strongly enough that I would be like, you know, oh, no, you guys need to stop now. It's not black salve or some, you know, incredibly dangerous thing. So, so how does the genie go back in the bottle? Because like Craig mentioned about the media, the media is, is pushing this one side of things, the, the animal side of things, right? It sounds like all they need to do is get told the truth about the studies. Like, like the ridiculousness of pushing that one side creates this other side of the argument that goes like, "Don't these guys know it's it's yeah, why, like used in humans? Why are they lying uh, yeah, to us? Why are they I telling us it's vet meters? They're sort of yeah, fueling think, the conspiracy. Yeah, it really is. But the other thing is, you, I don't think you can get the genie back in the bottle. I think it's out. I don't think we will ever stop ivermectin from being a thing. But ivermectin. And all of these early treatment things, as lithromycin, ivermectin, steroids, all of them have thrived not just because the evidence looked good, because in a lot of cases it doesn't. They've thrived because they are things people wanted to believe, saying 
this the Joe Rogan narrative, this is in your hands, this is something you control. And especially for ivermectin, that nexus with anti-vaccination, people taking it explicitly as an alternative to anti-vaccination, makes it a really, really popular thing to believe. So like Carveo, that fake study, I actually reckon even though it was lower quality and wasn't included in so many meta-analyses, it did more damage than any other. Because it came out there and said there's a 100% effective way to stop yourself getting COVID without being vaccinated. And, you know, if you're going out there and you're going to people with easy answers and you're going, there's something you can do that's completely in your control that will protect you from COVID and you don't have to do this other thing you're scared of, easy answers are always going to find the audience. Yeah. And so obviously no matter what research is done that's complete, that's truthful, that's honest, it's it's almost going to be seen as like, well, what, why are you trying to cover it up? It sort of just feeds that yeah. conspiracy. And I get that all the time. Like, and the thing is, I didn't target trials because they were making outlandish claims. I targeted based on size. Lopez, Medina, Valeos, all these ones, they got the same email from me. But every time I come out, I go, well, this is clearly fake. You know, there's just 11 sets of vital signs and like heights and weights that just repeat in order for the whole study. And people are like, why are you picking on that? That doesn't change things. I'm like, because it's fake. Um, and there's this thing of anyone who criticizes these treatments is a shill. Yeah, is a shill. And like, <laughs> the thing is, like, for Craig and me, you can say for sure whether we are or we aren't. Like, for doctors, you can look up in Australia since 2018, you can look up every gift. Every time a pharmacy, every time a pharma company, even so much as pays for a flight or, you know, you sign on to those education things. You just go to disclosureaustralia.org.au. You can look up any pharmacist, doctor, anyone who's in an APRA registered profession. And you can see, and you can go there and go, I haven't taken a cent. I don't even take coffee from um, pharma reps. And I'll listen to them. But my problem is I'm really easily bored. So I find that, <laughs> no, seriously, someone gives me a coffee. Like there's this thing about, you know, our generation is hard to advertise to. I'm not. I see an ad for like KFC and I am having KFC within 30 minutes. <laughs> I love it. So we've discovered here ivermectin probably hasn't worked. We're, no. we're, going to, we're going to shift into potentially something that may have worked or we'll find out in a moment. So, Pete, I want to throw it over to you. The antibodies. This is what Trump did. This is what Joe had done. Is it? Is it the cure-all? Is, is it the treatment? Is it the, the silver bullet? Is it, what is it? How many studies have you made up? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't look at my research. No, no, no. It's, a, it's a very legitimate research. Um, so I've been thinking about what the analogy is for this, um, for what the antibody should be, and we'll sort of go around in a bit of a circle and come back to this. But I would call the antibodies an air, like an airbag, right? And you driving on the road really well and safely that's a vaccine, right? So I would suggest to people that the best way to go about things is to drive really safely. You don't want to try out your airbag, right? But what we've got now with these antibodies is um, a really good safety net if the worst is happening, right? And I sort of, I, I, I've got to say straight off the bat, Craig and Trav, how he was talking to, um, uh, was it uh, Liam the other week? Uh, everything that he was saying was just totally on the money completely agree with that um and so okay so let's get back to what an antibody is right so all of us right now have 
uh, millions of different types of antibodies floating around in our bloodstream. Um, and that's our, that's basically our immune repertoire to everything we've been either immunized with or have, uh, have, uh, been infected with in the past. Right. And what's happening is you have a huge array of different B cells in your body and each one of them can make a different antibody. And every time some infection or immunization comes along, um, the B cells that can make an antibody that can bind to that target, they get told, Hey, it's your turn. You're up and then they start replicating and they start making lots of the antibody. Um, and that's a very effective component of our own immune system that protects us from a whole heap of different things, including the people that recover on their own from being infected with COVID. Um, so what we're doing with these therapeutic antibodies is we're using a bunch of different techniques to make um, these antibodies uh, that can specifically target whatever the problem is. Um, and uh, so what you get a picture is like, it's like a, an antibody is kind of like a, a Y-shaped protein, a pretty big one. And what you got a picture is on this Y-shaped protein, there's a pair of hands and each antibody has its own specific set of hands that bind to a specific target, right? And then the rest of that Y-shape molecule um, is able to flag the rest of the immune system to come and attack it and clear it. Um, and also many times, these antibodies can have a really potent effect as an of themselves as well, which is what's happening with a lot of these COVID antibodies. Um, so that's sort of a bit of an intro to what they're like, what they are. Um, and then basically what's happened, it was actually really amazing to see um, the response to COVID-19. And just, I'll just talk from a bit from personal experience with that. So we were seeing all these outbreaks happening in Wuhan and it was starting to spread elsewhere. Um, we knew that that therapeutic antibodies could be a big part of the mix. Um, so when we started looking into it in February, there was already a sequence for the, the, the whole um, genome of, of, uh, of, uh, of the virus. Um, there was already very well characterized that this spike protein. So the spike, basically these viruses are covered in a spike protein. It's a really, really large protein. It's basically three replications of the same protein all smooshed together to make this spike. And on the end of that spike, there's this little knob called the RBD, the receptor binding domain, right? And that is the bit that is binding to a receptor on the cells of our body called ACE2. So that was straight away, that was going to be the target of any antibodies and also the vaccines, most importantly, um, that we were going to try and use to neutralize this virus, right? So this is how all the vaccines work as well. Um, You've got all the uh, mRNA vaccines, which are basically, um, basically you're getting a very tiny dose of genetic material called mRNA, not DNA, that is getting into the cells and transiently, very transiently telling them to make some spike protein, right? Which means your body can now see it because it's in your body for a, a short period of time in a very controlled way. Um, and you start making antibodies to that, um, which, you know, is being shown to give you a really quite an effective immune response at protecting you from the most serious outcomes of COVID. Um, I, I'm, if you had have told me uh, this time last year that we in Australia would have a choice between now three different vaccines by now that are working as well as they are, I would, I would be, yes, let's take it because we really didn't know how this was going to pan out. Um, and so basically when we're getting those vaccines, we start making our own antibodies to the spike and most specifically the RBD. And the whole 
the, the way that these antibodies are working for the most part is they're binding to that part of the of the RBD, this little knob that's binding to your cells. They're binding to that first and they're stopping it from binding, right? So these cell, these virus particles can no longer infect the cells. So what we're doing in the lab and what a lot of pharma companies around the world have done to make antibodies, um, it, it gets a bit confusing, right? So we've got our own immune response, but we can also hijack this as well and we can make it in the lab so there's a few different approaches that are used to do this and um and and that's what we've done we actually tried a bunch of different things all at once so by february last year we got the, the genetic sequence from publications of what this rbd what, what what its protein sequence was we were making it in our lab so that we could start making antibodies against it and getting the sequences of the antibodies that we discovered that could bind to it right and um we've tried a bunch of different things we've got our own already got our libraries that we can sort of screen in our lab where we've got you know 10 to the 10 different antibodies that are in the library and we can find which ones bind um but one of the approaches that also worked really well for us was um to to take uh th there was publications back over 10 years ago um to the original SARS virus where they actually found some antibodies that were really good at neutralizing that the, the original SARS virus, right? And uh, we um, we we decided we'd actually spin these back up and see if any of them could bind to COVID nineteen. Um, and some of them had a slight cross reactivity already. And once we had these antibodies that were probably a close fit, we started tweaking with them until we made them into versions of that antibody that could bind the new COVID. So that's one of the approaches we did. And that's actually been used um, by some of the commercial antibodies that are out there. So um, I guess we could jump to what's actually out there. So my understanding is that Joe Rogan had uh, the Regeneron one, as did Trump. So this is, you know, compared to, uh, there's all these scales of magnitude of what's being put into someone. So when someone gets the vaccine, they're getting micrograms of the mRNA. And then, um, as Kyle pointed out earlier, the, the ivermectin you're talking about, you know, um, uh, thousands of micrograms in, in the doses of the ivermectin. With the Regeneron, when people are getting dosed with that, it's actually eight grams of antibody. So it's quite a lot of protein that's getting pumped into you, right? Um, so that's, that's one of the ones that's being used in the US. I won't dwell on it too long, but it's actually a cocktail of two antibodies both of which combined to the spike in slightly different ways. So um, that's one thing. Eli Lilly have also a cocktail of two antibodies, um, but that one um, has actually been put on temporary halt for a while because it wasn't effective to a couple of the strains that were pretty prevalent in USA for a while. But then I'll get to the key ones. So, so Trovamab, which is from GSK. You've probably heard that company before. They make a lot of pretty innocuous medicines like uh, Panadol and stuff. But so, so Trovamab is an antibody that can um, bind to uh, the RBD. It sort of binds a little bit of a, a cryptic side on there, something that's not that obvious. And um, it's been pretty good um, in the clinical trials that have happened so far. So essentially in, in very, you know, legitimate uh, double-blinded clinical trials, it's stopping progression to, um, to more severe disease and death um, by about 80%. So, you know, like I said before, it, I think that the most important component of the, of our protection right now is, um, is vaccines and the ongoing rollout of vaccines. 
um, but then antibodies are a really good um, backstop to that. And we shouldn't be thinking about these as like a something that we can go down to the pharmacy and decide we're going to have. This is a very uh, full-on treatment. You're having an infusion because it is quite a lot of protein that's getting put into you. This is going to be at the discretion of healthcare professionals that are taking care of people that are deemed to be high risk and a high likelihood of progressing to a, a nastier version of, of, of the disease. So it's, it's not really going to be something that you go out and choose. It's going to be something that's strongly suggested or basically is given to you if you are becoming serious. Uh, unless you're a, a person of extreme means. That's probably so yeah, I was going to say, well, you just said that was going to be my question of the extreme means, because, you know, essentially it sounds like this is sort of reserved for when people are getting the more severe cases or more, more severe illness, not necessarily for someone who has just tested positive and, and has no symptoms realistically. Um, it's it's getting used at that more severe end of, of treatment. There, there has been a lot of talk and probably there's probably cases of it being of these antibodies being used um, as a protective thing um, for healthcare people on the front line. But now that the vaccination rates are so high, that's probably um, a little bit less relevant um, nowadays. But essentially you've got to think of it this way, right? So this is a, a protein that, looks a bit like your own, you had your own immune response to COVID. And that's what your body looks like afterwards, except you don't have the B cells to back it up. You don't have any memory B cells that make that antibody. You've just got the antibody floating around. And after a few months, it's all going to have left your system, right? So you're back to square one. This is something that obviously is a very, like an acute treatment to the disease when someone's, you know, stricken with COVID, it'll be there in your system to block the RBD from, from binding to your cells and infecting each individual cell. That's how it's going to work. It's not something to, you know, even if it was to be used as a protective measure, you're only talking about, you know, months of efficacy there. So mm -hmm. it's, and it's purified protein. So it's very expensive to make. And obviously you've got to make orders of magnitude more of it to treat people. So I think um, the initial order in Australia was something like, seven or 8,000 doses of the Strevimab. So it doesn't sound like much, but at the moment when we've had, you know, um, in this current outbreak, we've had about 60,000 cases. And from that, I think we've had uh, something like about 270 deaths so far. Um, so you, you, you're talking in the scales of um, a pretty handy um, airbag to protect the people that are about to face the worst outcome. Let's take a quick break. Hey, Bar & Grill fans, it's Jim with Madhouse Bar Talk, where me and my co-hosts sit around and talk about the things going on around Madhouse Bar & Grill in Elyria, Ohio. The whole conversation is unscripted, uncensored, and unedited. Anywhere where you stream podcasts, just remember, Madhouse Bar Talks, baby! So, when, we, when we're talking treatment then... Or for people in those severe cases, whether you can, whether you have an opinion, whether you can say it, you know, is this one of the best lines when it comes to treatment? Like, it, uh, are there I'm, other I'm, things I'm around not, there? I'm or not a, I'm not a healthcare professional, um, so I can't really yep. be officially on the record as saying it. But I think it's a very crucial part of 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 the safety net. But it is something that's um, ongoing. Like I said before, so the thing you got to remember with this we really don't know where this virus is ultimately going to go. 
eventually we're going to hope that there's like an evolutionary trajectory um, towards like a reduced virulence as it sort of mutates into a less nasty version of itself, probably combined with one that's more infective. So it sort of overrides the, the nastier strains, but there's other ways that's going to go. There's going to, obviously there already is, you know, antigenic drift. So that means that, so you got to think about this little, that little knob I was talking about the RBD, right? So it is a very, got a very high rate of mutation. This is how these viruses adapt to different hosts, right? It, it has mutations in that little section that binds to the cells of whatever the host is that happen at a very high rate. So what's already happening with all these strains is they are mutations there, which make it look less and less like that original Wuhan strain um, and less and less like the version that's in the current vaccines. Mm. So this is going to be an ongoing battle and we need all the tools we can get, right? You know, if, if there were other antivirals that had more compelling uh, research data backing them up, that's great too. But for the most part at the moment, we've got this first wave of vaccines, which will get adapted as, as this changes, right? They're going to keep having different versions of the vaccines um, and we're going to need more and more antibodies to have as good a toolkit as possible. So the way you're going to think about it, right? So, and or, as I was saying, Eli Lilly one for a while was halted in, in, in a lot of USA because it wasn't effective to gamma from Brazil or Delta plus from India. I think that was what the situation was. It's now been reinstated again in some States where um, the levels of that strain are pretty low but this is what's going to happen over time. So you're going to need new antibodies mm. that bind in a slightly different way so that when there's that one new mutation on the RBD, which messes up antibody X, you're going to have antibody Y to come in and attack it as well. And the most important thing that's going to happen, and that's already the trend, is to have a cocktail of antibodies. So you have maybe two or three, and they all bind it in a different way. It's kind of like, you know, if you think about any fight scene in a movie where, you know, for some reason, all the, all the, all the people come one at a time to fight this guy. Right? <laughs> and it's just, all I need to jump on him all at once. So if you had two or three antibodies all attacking the virus at once, it has to come up with multiple mutations and just do backflips that it can't do all at once. So you yeah. make it harder for the antibody to evolve away and become what you call an escape um, mutant. So, so yeah. So Travis, your options are you, you, you you've got gun to your head you've got COVID, you've got antibodies or you've got ivermectin what are, what are you going to go for Trav? What are you going to do? <laughs> yeah so, sounds pretty comprehensive that i'm going for the antibodies right <laughs> yeah. so craig i'll throw it over to you Th thanks pete that was uh you know it's amazing hearing it from someone you know and kyle as well who knows what they're talking about <laughs> you know um it's it's interesting when you when you listen to joe rogan and you listen to him say things and, and you're like well you're you're you know he gets some good guests on but it, it's really good to hear people who this is what they do this is what you do so it's uh yeah, thank you for both of you for, for giving that input so craig um kyle's probably gonna have some stuff to say on this as well so we've we've going the antibodies the antibodies we're saying are a tick we're saying thing. ivermectin is a big cross. I know on, on a previous episode, we spoke about the importance of general health. So the fact that people are generally healthier is also a big tick. Um, then I suppose this is what we're going to get at, get at here, Craig, a little bit is when people are being hospitalized, 
what do we find typically when they're hospitalized? They've got a bunch of low things. They've got a bunch of low mm. vitamins, low NAD, and all of this sort of stuff, which is low when they're hospitalized. So if we pump people full of that, what's what's that sort of reason, which is what Joe did? How does that yeah. all work? Yeah, so one of, one of Joe's other things, which is um, – it's sort of part of his usual health routine. He often talks about his NAD drips and he talks about his vitamin drips and all those sort of things. And, and um, that in itself uh, is, uh, is a, probably a deep dive to explore a lot of the evidence. But I guess we'll, we'll look at it with regards to what, what it means for someone who's uh, affected by COVID-19. So um, I'll start off just by talking about some of the different vitamins and some of the findings that they've had. And and uh, anyone else is uh, free to chime in at any time. Uh, as you said, a, lo a lot of the findings have been uh, correlational. So a lot of it has been looking at the populations that have most been affected uh, by COVID-19 uh, and are making up the higher proportion of mortality, morbidity, those that are ending, in ending up in hospital and ending up with more severe disease. So we know that the sort of people that this affects is, is the older people, it's people who are obese, it's people who have chronic conditions. And so there's a lot of evidence that looks at the other things that might be going on. And, and so some of the things they look at is, is vitamin levels. Uh, so some of the ones that have gained a fair bit of popularity in the media would be things like vitamin C and vitamin D um, that they've explored as trying to identify people who are at increased risk of becoming unwell. So um, I am unfamiliar with the exact cocktail of vitamins that Joe might have taken, but no doubt it would have had a, a component of vitamin C. And I know he's a big proponent of vitamin D, which is, is a positive thing because it is important to have good vitamin D levels. Um, they talk about, so I actually went and looked, there's a, there's a couple of literature reviews out there around the role of, of vitamins in, 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 with regards to infectious diseases. One of them was uh, was quoting the uh, FLCCC, so I'll know now that uh, thanks to the information I got from my good friend Kyle, I'll uh, rapidly not uh, rely on that as the highest <laughs> level of evidence. But it, it talks about sort of immunonutrition and so the, the role in, in, um, in intensive care environments generally of providing people with high, do high doses of, um, of vitamins. So the, the thing that is really important, and I guess if we're looking at the Joe example, is... One of the issues that we have with studying and understanding COVID is most of the research in terms of clinical research is happening in the hospital system and it's happening with the more unwell people. So the example was given that in the US, if you're very sick, hopefully there's a space for you to end up in hospital and these end up being the major population that a lot of the studies are conducted on. If you're mildly, uh, mildly un unwell or asymptomatic uh, and you have a positive test, you're required to quarantine and isolate at home and in general, there's a restriction about not being able to see you. That's why you're in quarantine. So really, there's very little evidence about um, out-of-hospital uh, treatment and management of COVID because these people aren't coming into being to be studied. They're staying at home. They're getting better. So we have very little information about them. Uh, and, and what that means is it makes it really hard to extrapolate any of the evidence that we do have to someone like Joe who is at home with mild symptoms and is otherwise relatively healthy with limited comorbidities. So that's an important starting point. Um, regarding looking at the, at the different vitamins uh, and, and what they mean, so there, there is some underlying uh, previous evidence that, that uh, the use of certain vitamins can assist in, in severe respiratory diseases. It can assist in, in uh, what's called acute respiratory distress syndrome, which is one of the end states of a severe lung infection, and in sepsis, so a whole of body 
uh, infective process. So there is some evidence that, that vitamin replacement can help with these. But what we're looking at, we're looking at quite unwell people. So regarding some of the claims, um, you know, there's, an, there's going to be uh, an emerging uh, body of data about these claims. Uh, the, the other thing to look at is uh, looking at which vitamins we're actually talking about. So one of the most uh, commonly discussed um, things that we, we talk about is vitamin C. So there was, a, there was quite a, a while where we talked about vitamin C as being quite positive for even mild, uh, mild infections. It turns out that it maybe reduces your symptoms by a day or two for common coughs and colds. That's, that's sort of where that evidence ended up falling. Uh, there, there was a literature review that looked at um, vitamin C use. So high-dose intravenous vitamin C for treatment of COVID-19 patients. Um, and that gave a large, a large bolus of vitamin C. So 10 gram to 20 gram given over an eight to 10 hour period um, with additional boluses. It showed some improvements in oxygenation um, and some overall uh, potential that this might help with their respiratory disease. Um, probably you'd, someone like Kyle could do a deeper dive into those studies, you know, and probably would pick apart well, that well, one that came, is, out of, came out this, of China. Yeah, well, this is an interesting thing, right? Because just having having heard Kyle speak, you go like, yeah. oh, really puts a bummer on doing your own <laughs> research, doesn't it? <laughs> it's... Well, I, I've tried to look for some decent level of evidence, but to be fair, this is uh, I'm not a medical researcher, so... Uh, this is very much a, a side a side passion to prepare us for our amazing bro science episodes. Thoughts, Carl? Yeah, so a couple of things. One is that one of the advantages we have about being in Australia and having the TGA instead of the FDA is there's very little secrecy. If you want to know why a decision was made, you can actually look it up. You're actually much more able to look up things in Australia. So we have these things called OzPars. Uh, so AUS for Australia and PAR is something assessment report. I can't remember what the P stands for, but like um, like you were saying for the GSK uh, antibody cocktail, you can look up what evidence they considered, what they were still waiting for, why they decided, yes, this gets approved and no, that one doesn't. And so, you know, like a lot of people will hang, will hang a lot on Joe for taking the monoclonal antibodies. That is actually the time they're approved for. In Australia. So like in Australia, the approval is fairly narrow. It's for people you think have a high chance of deteriorating before they deteriorate. So if you've got someone out there who you know has poorly controlled diabetes or who has uh, is someone who is in renal failure on dialysis and they get COVID, you give it to them early. That's what it's approved for in Australia. You have people who are at high risk of progressing who haven't progressed yet. So, I mean, I don't know Joe's medical history. I watched a couple of minutes of clip of him talking about whether he needed to sue CNN for saying he was taking horse dewormer. And about 90 seconds later, he and there's this other bald guy on the podcast were lighting up cigars in the podcast. <laughs> so I don't know what other problems he has and whether he's at higher risk. But for all that, you know, we hang a lot on it. If you're going to take monoclonal antibodies in terms of the Australian approvals, that's the time to take them before people when you know someone has COVID and they haven't yet gotten sick. Um, in terms of the vitamin stuff, it's hard to unpick because as, uh, as Craig says, there's not a great balance in terms of where we direct our research effort between people who are really unwell and in terms of community prevention stuff. And vitamins are something where there are just an enormous number of confounders. So we can look at trials, but it's really hard to take observational stuff. People 
who have vitamin deficiencies often have less healthy lifestyles. So in terms of, you know, I, I've been in lockdown now for what, like five or six weeks and I am just a husk. Like there's just under this sweatshirt, there's just this jelly shaped like a person. And my vitamin D is going to be terrible at the moment. My vitamin D hasn't been great in the past, but it's low because I have been in sort of two rooms for six weeks. If you live in suddenly parts of America where you live in these things called food deserts, where there's no fresh food anywhere around you, you will be vitamin C deficient, but you probably have lots of other things that come with that. So I think there's a, I would be surprised if there is not a role for vitamins in a much broader range of diseases than where we see them. But right now we're not doing the kind of research we need to do to actually find that out it's dominated by really low quality stuff that we won't be able to trust the answers for. Um, in terms of the other stuff, you know, you took a lot of other stuff too, like you took azithromycin, doesn't work. Um, we've got three really high quality trials. It's not ivermectin, it's not hydroxychloroquine. It's been pretty clear for a while, azithromycin doesn't work um, for COVID. In terms of steroids, steroids are an interesting one. So it's another example of not trying to sort of homebrew it yourself. So steroids, if you are really sick with COVID, save lives. There's no questions around that. And it's sort of one I think a lot of alternative people really struggle with because people go to me, oh, you know, ivermectin only costs six bucks, which isn't true anymore. Ivermectin costs a ton of money in America. It's really short and there's a lot of profiteering going on. And people go, oh, you know, it's just not approved because it's not profitable enough. You know, monoclonal antibodies are so expensive. And I say, well, that's true. Why did we approve, you know, why did we say dexamethasone definitely works when it's about 15 cents a tablet? But the evidence we have says that when you're very early in disease and very mild, we're not sure, but it actually is tilting more towards steroids doing harm. Um, certainly high-dose oral steroids. There's a bit more of a question around inhaled steroids. There might be a role for those. That's not clear. Um, but just because something works and is helpful when someone is really sick with COVID actually doesn't mean it's helpful when someone has very mild COVID. Mm. Yeah, it is interesting. So I actually had a look and, and this is one of the places that there's quite, uh, quite direct recommendations. So the World Health Organization has two recommendations around the use of systemic corticosteroids, which is, so prednisone was one of the treatments that, that Joe took. Recommendation one is the the it's recommended that it's used uh rather to use it rather than not for the treatment of patients with severe or critical COVID-19 and that's a strong recommendation based on moderate certainty evidence and then recommendation two is not to use corticosteroids in the treatment with non-severe COVID-19 so uh the evidence is if you're very sick we use it to try and blunt that sort of over-the-top immune response but if you're like Joe with mild symptoms you probably should uh give that one a miss as well. Yeah. And I think that's where a lot of the evidence is going around immune modulation as much as around straight antiviral effects for a lot of these treatments. So uh, there's a recent trial that's come out of giving MMR vaccine to people who aren't vaccinated for COVID uh, in South America. And they found it had zero effect on infection rate, but a significant effect on whether people became symptomatic whether they uh, went on to develop is that, serious that MMR would be measles, mumps, measles, mumps, rubella. 
So no reason to think that it would um, help for COVID. And they found while it didn't change infection rates at all, it meant that people had much more mild disease. Um, and a lot of the arguments around ivermectin also are around immunomodulatory stuff rather than around antiviral stuff. Again, I struggle with it because of fraud. So even a lot of the basic science, like the animal research, is just clearly faked. Like the big trial, that, the big animal study that said that ivermectin probably treats dengue, you don't need raw data. You look at the paper and you go, this is fake. This cannot be true. Um, in plos, and you know that. And then what we usually see is we get this stuff and then we get good human trials and fail spectacularly. Everyone scratches their head and goes, oh, how that happened, which is what happened with dengue. You know, we had these spectacular animal results, fake, got translated into a massive clinical trial, found no effect. So I really struggle with evidence for how to treat COVID overall. Mm. Like no one person actually has enough time or enough hours in the day for their full-time job to sit down and go, yes, I have looked at the evidence and decided what works for COVID. You can't do it. There's more evidence there than any one person can look at. And I really struggle. Like if I got COVID tomorrow, I would probably listen to the advice that I get from whoever's treating me because this idea that you can go out there and do your own research to the raw data is just rubbish. No one has that time. You can go out there and you can assess who is saying what and say, yes, I believe this person. This person has genuine chops. This is the process they went through to decide that. This has been looked at those people and take the expert advice. This idea that you can become more expert than the experts, it's just not realistic. There are limits to sort of human stuff. And so if I got COVID tomorrow and I became sick and I was in, you know, St. George is my local hospital, and they said, we want to do this, this, and this, and not this, this, and this, I'd probably ask why. And I'd ask, you know, what their evidence is. But then I'd probably also accept that. Mm. This idea that this is something that it's realistic to go out and assess yourself, I just, it's not for me. I couldn't do it. So with that in mind, I mean, we'll go back to, to Pete's analogy of, of driving safe on the road. So I would suggest that, Everyone's driving safe on the road would mean that the vaccinations have the robust evidence, have the robust clinical trials um, to suggest uh, efficacy for maybe not necessarily stopping transmission, but definitely stopping or, or heavily reducing hospitalizations and then eventually deaths. I think that's yeah. the key. It's the fact that you're... Um... The, the main reason we all need to take the vaccine right now is to keep the pressure off our ICUs, right? Because clearly we, we, we're giving a very high standard of care here in Australia so far because we're not overwhelmed, right? Um, this is something I've been sort of looking, watching closely because we, you know, if you break down what's happened in Australia so far to, I sort of drew a line in the sand around May. So that's when we'd had 30,000 cases, which was all the cases from last year where there's a lot of factors at play, obviously. There would have been um, less efficient detection of all cases, but we also had no vaccines that had really been effectively rolled out by then. Um, we had, hadn't had much thoughtful practice as to how we were protecting people in nursing homes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we had 910 deaths in those first 30,000 cases. So that's about 3%. 
as of tonight, we're probably ticking over the 60,000 cases. And in this second outbreak since May in, in Victoria and, and New South Wales. 60,000 in 60, this outbreak alone or in total? May, since May. Okay. So basically not much was happening in May. Before May, we'd had, you know, we had the North Shore stuff here in Sydney. We'd had multiple outbreaks last year in Victoria. We had the initial thing that was nationwide. Um, that was 30,000 all totaled up, all of that, 910 deaths. This second 60,000 now, so twice as many cases now in this new outbreak since May. Um, and there's been 268 deaths. So the ratio there is 0.45%. So you can see it's actually, there's a lot of factors at play, but whatever's going on is working because we've now got one sixth as many deaths from, from each COVID case. Now, I, granted, there were a lot of deaths on cruise ships and there were sort of really acute outbreaks in different nursing homes that caused multiple deaths in a nursing home last year. But obviously we're doing a lot that's working, all right? Um, and I think a big part of that is the vaccines as well. And the fact that we still have not overwhelmed our ICU. And that's just not the case in many parts of the world. You know, um, you know, it's just crazy in America what's happened compared to here. You know, I think in the state of New York, I think one in 300 people has died from it. So, you know, it's, and here we're talking about tiny numbers relatively. So we just got to all do our best to, to keep those ICUs from not being overwhelmed. And the best thing we can do for that is vaccination. And that's me as an antibody guy, I'm saying the best thing is the vaccination, right? We've got, you know, now we've got three options. They're all going to help us a lot. Um, I absolutely think people should be, you know, doing, doing all they can to have good nutrition as well and getting whatever sun they can. Um, but, uh, and also using any of the on-label treatments that are going to be offered to them by our healthcare because we have a very well-regulated healthcare here in Australia. So I don't think you need to go out and look for your own solutions to it the risk of um, anything really bad happening to you, especially now that we're really on top of it with the vaccines is incredibly low. Um, but then the upshot of it, especially now that we've got 60,000 cases in this current outbreak is, you know, it's, it, there's a lot of upshot to taking the vaccine. So I, I would strongly recommend that as a starting point and then be confident that we're, we're working really hard to keep having good safety nets to that. And I think that the antibodies are going to make a big difference as well. Um, it's hard to actually enumerate what that is so far, but um, if these clinical trials have been done with this Trevimab, which is the one we have here right now, and there hasn't been any, um, you know, uh, there hasn't been any escape mutants to that yet or any, um, uh, any strains that are necessarily uh, less susceptible being, to being treated by that. And if that stops progression by 80 percent that's going to be a huge thing so if we've got a fraction of the cases in hospital that we would have had anyway because of the vaccines and then we double down on that with something that saves four-fifths of those people i think we're in a pretty good position so yeah i think what you, the first bit you said though sort of proves the second one as well like about the main reason you take the vaccine is sort of for your own benefit not just the transmission but not getting sick and when I say that to people, a lot of anti-vaxxers come back to me and go, well, why is it any business of yours? If this isn't just about transmission, if this is mainly about me getting sick, why is it any business of yours? It's business of mine because if I get sick, I want there to be an ICU bed there for me. Like we have made this progress. So right at the start of the pandemic, I'm in this international group uh, on spine um, that meets every few months and two of our members of Lombardy. And 
the first time we had a meeting, one of them had to leave because he cried so much that he couldn't. He'd just had two of his colleagues die in the hospital. Keeping people out of ICU is actually everybody's business. We've gotten down to that partly because we are better at treating it. The things Craig was saying, like around um, dexamethasone for people who are really sick, putting people on their front. If we end up in a place in New South Wales where we have thousands of people needing ICU at once, thousands of them will die and that percentage will go back up. So people sort of go, you know, why is it your business if it's around stopping me getting sick? Stopping you getting sick is my business because if I get sick, I want there to be that bed there for me. 100%. Um, so just a bit of a, this may have like sort of inflamed my personal bias in this area a little bit, but um, I had a son last year. Um, we knew for about six months before he was coming that he was going to need an ICU when he came out. He's going to need an operation on the day he was born. This was um, something that we were geared up for and then COVID happened. Um, so we were um, at uh, Prince of Wales Hospital Children's ICU. Uh, this would have been in uh, early April to mid-April, and which is, you know, just as it looked like, like that was when we started turning, miraculously turning our cases down here in Australia compared to what has happened elsewhere. So in that ICU, they were, they were basically building new rooms in the children's ICU to, to house uh, adult patients for COVID. And um, that first night I was there in the, um, in the ICU, they were actually, uh, I didn't realize until I was freaked out for a bit. I didn't realize they were actually practicing um, resuscitation. Um, it looked like they had a real patient there. There was a whole bunch of people in hazmat, but it was, they were basically practicing their protocol for resuscitating um, a COVID patient. And that was uh, right next to all these kids that need this ICU care. Happily, my son is perfect now, but um, anyone that's in that situation I was in last year, I really bloody want them to have an ICU bed that could have been, uh, you know, avoided having a COVID patient quite easily by having a vaccine. Yeah. Like yeah. enjoy the fact that we've got this safety net now. We're really privileged that our outbreak is happening once all this has been figured out and we're not in the mess that a lot of countries were last year. Uh, but we've all got a part to play as well. And um, even it, it helps you and it helps everyone else because of the ICU situation. So, yeah. yeah. Thanks. Thanks for sharing, Pete. Like I think I remember seeing a lot of that, you know, via Facebook and, and yeah, it's, it's good to see that, that he's doing well and everything's, you know, he's about a year old now, right? Not yeah, he's a year and a half. He's you great. Know. He's loving life. So. Love it. Love it. Kyle, I suppose we're, we're getting to that point where we're, we're going to sign off. Um, so Kyle, any sort of last thoughts or last comments that you'd like to make to, to people listening? Yeah, I guess I don't want people to think that all medical science is rubbish just because some of it is. Um, and we do, a lot of these trials were allowed to be fake or were able to be fake because they were done in places that didn't have oversight. They weren't done by companies that are going to the FDA and TGA and need to track things and have an audit trail. Having having or, lived in Argentina for yeah. for a period of time, that's probably a fair fair assumption, yeah. a fair statement. <laughs> yeah. Almost every medicine you are offered probably has very solid evidence behind it. And for the vaccines that are approved in Australia, you can be 100% sure the research behind them is genuine. The amount of data oversight number of people involved the amount of audit and tracking to actually get something through a regulator do not doubt the science behind the vaccines the ones that are approved in australia is absolutely legitimate 
Love it. Craig, any, anything to finish off on? Well, I think we've discovered that we do not need the kitchen sink, but um, if we're in trouble, we can steer clear of the vet surgery and we can go straight to, to Pete's fellas for, a, uh, for an airbag if we get to that point. But uh, ideally, we all just drive safe, get a vaccine in our arms and get back to the pub. 100%. I'm ready. <laughs> Me too. All right, guys. I want to say thank you so much uh, for your time, both of you. Uh, your knowledge is is clearly amazing and, and outstanding and, yeah, really, really a wealth. And hopefully everyone listening in has sort of got the message, if you, if you haven't read between the lines here, go and get vaccinated. Um, it, it, it's the best for everybody's sake and, and saying like, hey, you know, whether or not whether or not you're going to ask anybody else as a gym member, it doesn't matter. Do it for yourself. Do it for everyone else around you, and it's 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 going to be the best thing for you and and the society moving forward. So, I think that's probably what we're going to finish off on. Thanks for for tuning in, everybody, and uh, we'll see you next time on another episode of Bro Science. Thank you for listening. If you liked this show, share it with your friends, subscribe on iTunes, and leave us a five star review. For show notes and free training on how to grow your fitness business, visit www.fitnesseducationonline.com.au. Are you a fitness professional looking to provide your clients with personalized meal plans? Well, check out Mealsy, the ultimate solution for creating custom meal plans in just a few simple clicks. With Mealsy, you can say goodbye to countless hours spent on meal planning. Our Australian meal planning web app is designed to save you time and effort so you can focus on what really matters, your clients and their success. Mealsy provides you with a vast library of recipes all created by nutrition professionals. From breakfast to dinner and everything in between, we've got you covered. Whether you want to create a custom meal plan tailored to your client's needs or choose from our selection of ready-made meal plans, Mealsy has the flexibility to accommodate your preferences. So why waste precious time and energy creating meal plans from scratch? Let Mealsy do the heavy lifting for you while you focus on delivering exceptional fitness services. Join the community of fitness professionals who have revolutionized their business with Mealsy. Visit our website at www.mealsy.com and sign up today. Mealsy, the smarter way to meal plan for fitness professionals.